0: Welcome to the St Emeline's Podcast, I'm Ian Beardsall. And in our fourth podcast, taken live from the Premier Conference in Winchester, this is John O'Neill talking about penetrating injuries. There's a lot of messages in this podcast, both for adult and paediatric clinicians, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. John is an experienced pre-hospital and emergency physician, recently returned from Australia and currently working in University Hospital Southampton. And he brings many years of experience and knowledge to this fascinating talk. So I'm going to talk this morning about penetrating trauma I've recently come back from working in Australia for a protracted period of time, and if you talk about penetrating injuries in Australia, then inevitably uh, your talk will include a discussion about the local wildlife, so I thought I'd start a little bit With that, you've got a pediatric traumatic cardiac arrest coming in, you've got a busy recess room, but let me tell you, if the phone call says you've got someone who's been bitten on the foot by a shark, it will be standing room only in your recess room. People come from all around the hospital to see some sort of animal injury, it's quite incredible. Uh, any of you who've lived in Australia, and particularly in the northern part, will know it's not really the sharks that you have to worry about; it's the crocodiles. They're much more, much more wily and much more likely to do you harm. And in fact, the crocodiles eat the sharks. But anyone considering a holiday to Australia should be aware that they also have snakes that are big enough to eat the crocodiles. <laughs> so uh, I'll just, I'll just leave you. Uh thinking about that one if you're planning your next uh, your next trip. Apart from that, it's great. So, penetrating trauma. Clearly, the vast majority of patients that we're going to deal with with penetrating trauma is going to be down to violence, and I'm certainly going to concentrate on that as and the majority of the talk. There's two other causes, just to very briefly mention, which are impalement and, and self-harm. Impalements are relatively rare. I'm not sure how many of you have dealt with them, but they can be quite dramatic and quite confronting when you see them. In the pediatric setting, it's usually adventurous teenagers who are climbing over fences who have fallen. And you do often end up with them being brought in with most of the fence still attached to them. So they can be really quite impressive when you see them. The good news is, I think that the majority of these patients, if they've survived to come to hospital, then there's usually a little bit of time for us to make some planning, get the right people around to make those critical decisions, rather than having to rush into any immediate uh, decision making. And self-harm is a growing area, and they certainly getting into the penetrating injury side of things. There are a number of patients who do self-harm with penetrating injuries, specifically to the abdomen, and there's also, I think, a growing trend for insertion of foreign bodies, which can create a lot of issues for us in the emergency emergency healthcare setting, and I think that's something that's going to become a lot more frequent. But I'm not going to talk about those today in the, uh, in the interest of time little bit of statistics i'm sure you won't be too surprised to see that uh, penetrating injuries are right at the far end of the spectrum this is tarn data in terms of their frequency obviously the big two uh, road traffic accidents and falls taking up most of uh, most of that but if you look at the mortality data or the case fatality you'll see that penetrating injuries uh, have a significant mortality attached to them about sort of 20% so that indicates that these can be quite challenging to deal with and i think that leads to a degree of anxiety when we're managing these patients. They're often time critical. But the good news is that if we accurately diagnose the underlying injuries, then the majority of them are amenable to simple treatment. And about 80% can be dealt with without needing surgical intervention. The key is accurate and early diagnosis you would be pleased to know that down here on the, the leafy areas in Hampshire, we're relatively well protected and the incidence of penetrating injury is quite low. Looking around the rest of the country, it's really London that stands out as the, the area with the highest incidence, which I'm sure you won't be too surprised to hear. But not just central London, certainly reaching out into the borders of London, those of you that work in the, in the, uh, the fringes of London will also, I'm sure, have seen a significant number of these patients. In terms of the distribution of of patients that are injured, the majority of pediatric patients are, are in the teenage group, with the incidence rising from sort of 14, 15 up to a sort of peak incidence at 16 and 17. And there's a small bump in the much younger age group, secondary to child abuse, that I'm sure you'll be familiar with as well. There's a lot of discussion about whether or not the incidence is increasing, and I'm sure you've seen lots in the media to suggest that it is. I think the data on that is tricky and a little bit conflicting. It's certainly much more prevalent, but it's hard to get conclusive data to show that the actual numbers of admissions and the number of fatalities is increasing. So what about when these patients come into hospital? What are we, what are we going to do? I'm just going to talk through some of the principles around how we assess these patients in the early stages and then just a few reflections from having seen a number of these patients before. The vast majority will follow uh, trauma network triage protocols and so should end up in a major trauma center, but it's certainly feasible for those of you that work in centers outside of an MTC if there's a patient with major injuries who's unstable, that they may be brought to a center that isn't an MTC. So I think any of you potentially could see a patient with significant penetrating injury. There's a lot of discussion about whether these patients are best treated in a pediatric trauma center or a mixed center, Uh, Having worked in both, I think both are are certainly capable of providing high-level care for these patients. So, One of the things I was going to touch on is just the experience of being a, a trauma patient. I think it's particularly prevalent for this group. I don't know if any of you have been a trauma patient or whether you've done it in a sim. If you haven't, I would heartily recommend it. Being a trauma patient is awful, and I'm not sure we really understand just how bad it is. You've been through an awful experience, your trauma You can hear the the ambulance that's taking you to the hospital. You can see the rosy lights of the hospital in the distance. And then you arrive into the recess room, but actually that's where the trauma really begins. And we put you on the bed, we cut all your clothes off, we stick sharp needles into you, we move all the bits that hurt, we take you away from your family and your friends, and it's a really confronting sort of experience. So remember there's a patient who's underneath all of that and try and engage with them. I suspect this is already at the forefront of your mind, but I think it's an area we could all probably be, be better at. There is something specific about this group of particularly teenage boys who've been stabbed in that they, they don't really engage with... They're health providers, and they can be a really challenging group to deal with. I'm a father of two teenage sons, so I'm used to being ignored by teenage boys. But I think when dealing with these sort of patients, they often are very reluctant to give any sort of information at all for a whole variety of reasons, and that can make the, uh, the interactions with them quite difficult. Getting back to the assessment itself, is important that we've got a structured approach, which you'll all be very familiar with, and I'm sure you'll do that quite regularly, couple of things to bear in mind. The physiology can often be a little bit tricky in these patients and um, we expect that if a patient's shocked then they're going to be tachycardic, they're going to have prolonged cat refill or a low blood pressure potentially but in penetrating injury we don't always see that and certainly the vagal response can make some of the, f- the physiology a little bit more difficult to interpret. Certainly blood in the thorax and particularly blood in the abdomen can lead to quite a strong vagal response and so you may actually find these patients have a normal normal, or sometimes even a low heart rate. But that doesn't mean that they're not bleeding. Uh, in fact, it probably should raise your suspicion that they possibly are. The circumstances around these patients' injuries can be relevant too. A lot of people are in a chase. They're, they're being followed by a group of people that may be before they get stabbed. And sometimes after they've been stabbed, they then try and run away. And so you may find that patients have run a significant distance. The relevance of that is if they come in relatively soon after that, you may find that they're particularly acidotic on their gas. And that could be down to hypoperfusion, which is probably the first thing we have to assume. But bear in mind, it might also be because they've exercised and they've got a high lactate as a result of that. And it may actually improve uh, in the short time that you've got them with you in the department. Imaging, I think it's relatively accepted now that for patients with significant injuries, we're going to do a contrast CT. And I wholeheartedly endorse the comments earlier about us needing to scan more of these patients and do that more quickly. We're going to do some imaging. Potentially, we're going to obviously look for injuries to the pleura. If we don't find a hemo or a pneumothorax, then we will do an ultrasound. And we may find an injury like this. So a pericardial effusion causing tamponade and causing compromise to the patient. Challenging injury, uh, obviously underlying that, we've got blood around the heart, which is clotted. Best way, and really the only definitive way to treat that is with a thoracotomy. If your patient's still awake, then it's really important that we expedite getting those patients to theatre as quickly as possible and that we aren't reassured by a normal blood pressure. You sometimes have patients, I think, where we've made a diagnosis like that and we're waiting for the next available theatre. Patients look well but they can deteriorate incredibly quickly. And patients with a tamponade can tail off mid-sentence and go from having normal physiology to full-on cardiac arrest. So just because your patient is awake and interacting, we shouldn't be any less hurried in getting them up to the operating theater. Sometimes it's gone beyond that, and you may find that you get this call. You're just starting your night shift in the pediatric ED, and the phone goes, and, and you, you find out that you've got a cardiac arrest coming in, which is obviously going to wake you up uh, in the run-up to your night shift. So how do we prepare for that? And that's probably something that we all need to have a think about. If this happened in our setting, what would we do? Are we ready for this sort of patient to come in? Who are the people that we would need to come? Are we able to deliver a resuscitative thoracotomy in your emergency setting? Maybe you are. Maybe you aren't. There's a lot of things to think about in that. And um, Are you prepared for it? What's the decision-making around it? Do you know the protocols? And have you got someone in your department or access to that person in your hospital who could potentially come and do this procedure? Uh, It's a big procedure if we do end up doing a thoracotomy, and I think we worry a lot about the technical side of it. It's relatively easy, and I say that as a non-surgeon, to learn the technical aspects of a resuscitative thoracotomy. I think we overestimate the technical difficulties of doing the procedure, but I think we underestimate the psychological impact that it has on us as a team providing that intervention, and I think having an awareness of that is really, really important. Um, This is my wonderful colleagues in the emergency department at Southampton. We do regular training around some of these critical procedures that we don't do very often. So here we're practicing the the technical side of things, but actually in conjunction with this, we had a session where we sat down and we talked through what are the challenges of actually delivering this procedure in real life. What are the things that happen that get in the way? We all know what we want to do, but you're probably also aware that in real life there are lots of things that stop us making things happen. And trying to work out how we troubleshoot those is just as important, if not more, than the actual technical process itself. In Australia, I spent a little bit of time at the Gold Coast Hospital. I'm not sure if anybody here has has worked there, but they look at how we make things happen in the emergency department in a lot of detail. They've got a brilliant in-situ SIM program, which is led by a lady here, Vic Brazel, who's one of their emergency physicians. I would wholeheartedly recommend having a look for some of the talks that Vic's got online. She's very active in social media. Through their in-situ SIM program, They've really developed both the technical skills of their staff in the emergency department, but specifically, they've looked at their systems, their interactions with other parts of the hospital, and they've really taken things to the next level in terms of how do you improve those relationships across the hospital so that when you have a time-critical patient, you've already rehearsed a lot of these critical interventions. You've built up some of the personal relationships that mean when you're doing it for real, things go uh, more smoothly than uh, if you hadn't prepared. I'm sure you say, well, that's all well and good, but we're too busy to do things like that. We're all emergency physicians, and we've got lots of other things to do, I get that. Someone told me recently about AI and about chat GPT. I don't know whether many of you use it. For those of you that do education and you want to plan a sim, uh, I had a look at this, and I put into it, we wanted to run a sim on pediatric penetrating trauma, and within 30 seconds, you get an entire briefing of your... Sim, in terms of how to put it together, what to tell everybody, what are your learning points, what are your debrief points. Now, obviously, it needs a little bit of tweaking, and I'm not saying this should take over completely from your, from your role, but it certainly uh, will save you a little bit of time. It would seem remiss to talk about penetrating trauma in children, particularly teenagers, without talking about the safeguarding and the, the prevention side of things, which is a growing area. We've, we've, we're getting better at doing it. The picture at the bottom is Martin Griffiths, who's one of the trauma surgeons at the Royal London, who's been very involved initially with the London area, but he's now got a national role uh, in violence reduction. And again, I'd really recommend, if you're interested in that area, having a look at the sort of things that they're doing, because uh, uh, we're doing some of them here in Wessex, but I think there's scope for us to do, to do some more. This is the Knife Angel, which is a a large statue that goes around the UK. And essentially, it's made up of knives that were given in during police amnesties. It comes to various places, and it usually, it's a really impressive, I think it's about six metres high. And when it comes to places, it usually initiates discussions with local community leaders, with local health and police resources about how we manage knife crime and that's definitely an area that we can improve in and knife crime is a serious issue and penetrating injury in children is is a serious serious public health issue but questions for you is, are you ready if these patients come into your department? Do you have the experience, the knowledge to work out who it is within your hospital, within your department that's able to provide rapid, effective assessment and treatment for these patients? If we do that, then potentially we can have some good outcomes. Thank you very much.